we come now to the proclamation of God's Word, we're continuing through our sermon series through the book of First Peter, which is all about the hope that we have as believers that God has given us as His covenant people, which helps carry us through the hostility of a world that is contrary to the gospel of Christ. And I know in our uh, bulletin, I have uh, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 2 and verse 3, but we're actually going to stop in verse 21. Um, as I planned out my series and did my study, as often happens, I, I find I have more to cover than I would uh, like, so we're going to stop in verse 21. But again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. We read these words. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers and not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you then for your word. We're thankful that you have revealed to us your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we pray now as we consider these words as your people that you would instill in us this hope that is ours, that you will stir it up once again, reminding us of who, you, who we are in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, a fundamental rule for success in any endeavor is preparation. We, we know this. I mean, tra- imagine trying to do a job for which you have not been trained. If you need surgery, you don't go to a lawyer or an accountant, you go to a surgeon. And if you need a legal matter settled, who do you go to? You go to a lawyer, you go for, to those who have prepared for that particular task. If you're a student and you want to get a good grade on your exam, you have to prepare. There's just no shortcuts to that. I think all of us have probably tried that at some point in our lives, right? And usually the results aren't good, unless you're one of those people that you just feels like you don't have to study and you just remember everything. Uh, but generally, we have to prepare. We have to be ready. But how do you prepare for those things that uh, are unexpected? How do you prepare for those things, especially... Um, that come unexpectedly and thrust us into a situation where we are suffering. 
How do you prepare for unexpected suffering? I mean, nothing in the world really seems to prepare you for unexpected suffering. Remember the situation for Peter's original audience. They, they were beginning to feel the heat of a society turning hostile towards them because of their faith in Christ. They were suffering ostracism, economic hardship, loss of relationships, possibly soon, even imprisonment and death, if they continue to follow faithfully after Jesus. And so how do you prepare for that? How do you prepare for when the world turns hostile towards Christ and his church? Especially when so many things that we usually rely on fail us when it comes to being prepared for suffering. Peter speaks of some of those things in this text. He speaks of them in a couple different ways. In verse 14, he, he mentions the, the passions of your former ignorance. When we hear that word passion in the Bible, we usually think of it um, in, when we're talking about it in a negative sense of being uh, lusts or, or sinful sexual desires. And certainly passion, the, the word does include that. But the passions of your former ignorance that Peter speaks of here are much broader than that. They're any kind of self-indulgent desire, any focus upon one's self, to use the modern term expressive individualism. Self-indulgence is how we as humans, by default of our nature, apart from the grace of God working within us, it is how we function. I mean, we ultimately want what is best for ourselves. Now, it is true that we do think of others, especially those we care about. But when you dig down deep into the surface of our hearts, what you find is ultimately, ultimately, we want what's best for ourselves. And so it comes as no surprise then when we see people in this world, including ourselves, behaving selfishly, even hurting those they love because we love ourselves more than we love others. This idea of former ignorance that Peter speaks of is a life of unbelief. It's, it's the ignorance of God and his ways, what he requires of us through his word. It is the, the spiritual blindness or, or even the spiritual deadness that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 2. Another way the, the Bible portrays it is darkness. And so you put this passion and this former ignorance together. And what do you get? A self-indulgence that is separated from any acknowledgement of God. That is the human condition apart from the grace of the gospel. In verse 18, Peter continues to speak of this by saying it is the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers. That's another way uh, of speaking of these passions of of former ignorance. Uh, Futility is emptiness. It, It speaks to uselessness or ineffectiveness. And these are all the things, the ideas of the human heart, the people will trust in as a means of living their lives in that ignorance of God. In other words, it's, it's a way of life that is meaningless and empty. It has no purpose, no end, but the present life itself. 
And Peter says, this is the inheritive way of life. This is passed down from person to person to person. That is to say, it's historic. It's ongoing. This is the human condition. It's the way people have lived for millennia. Empty and void of meaning. Unless they know the hope that comes through the gospel. Now for Peter's original audience, this feudal way inherited by the forefathers in their direct context and their lives would have been uh, what they inherited from as, as pagan idolaters in the Greco-Roman world, worshiping the pantheon of Greek or Roman gods and goddesses before they encountered Christ. And so what we're talking about here is very much a worldview a way of looking at and understanding and functioning and behaving and thinking about life. That is the passions of the former ignorance, the feudal ways inherited by the forefathers. It is a worldview. I mean, everyone has a worldview. It shapes how we think, how we live, our behavior. And when put into the fires of suffering... Our worldview governs and directs our response to it. What do we do when we suffer? How do we respond? And so then if one has this worldview that Peter describes here as being self-indulgent, willfully ignorant of God, one that is ultimately empty and meaningless and useless, then no wonder, no wonder at the end of the day, you feel utterly hopeless when faced with suffering. Because the more you try to understand suffering in your life and why it is there and how it is affecting you, the more discouraged and despondent and angry and confused you become. True, you might find a remedy for a moment to end some form of suffering in your life, but then another moment comes, another tragedy. And when you faced, when people are faced with the reality of life's endless cycle of miseries, which cannot be solved by this godless, self indulgent worldview, Hopelessness is the only outcome. So for millions of people who refuse to bow in faith to Christ Jesus, there's no possible way to be prepared for unexpected suffering. They can't be. But Peter's readers, Peter's audience are different. We are called to prepare because we do have hope. As believers, we can be prepared for suffering when it comes. Verse 13 begins with that word, therefore. He's pointing us back to all he has said previously in the opening of his letter. So his his grace-filled greeting and this doxology of deliverance that we looked at last week. He's, He's told us who we are in Christ by the mercy of the Father. And now... He is about to show us the consequences of that. Here is what it means then. Here is what you are to do to prepare to face this world that is growing hostile towards you because you are identified with Jesus. And so he begins. He says, because you have the living hope, 
Because you have that unfading inheritance, that perfect salvation, prepare your minds for action. That's what he says. Prepare your minds for action. It's actually a popular idiom that he is using here. If you've read it in the King James Version, you know what it says. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. In the ancient world, um, a person would tuck their long robes under their belt, allowing better freedom of movement for accomplishing labor-intensive tasks, be it planting a field, farming, or even going into battle. Uh, A modern expression, perhaps, for this phrase would be to roll up your sleeves, right? To get to work. Get your working clothes on. Be ready. And Peter clarifies this call to preparedness in the face of a hostile world further by saying, be sober-minded. Sober-mindedness has to do with thinking clearly, being well-composed. So again, we get the sense of a readiness, a preparedness for what is to come and what needs to be done. When many people face a moment of suffering, in this world, they often will turn to things to distract them or to dull their senses, to ignore the suffering that is there. And that is why you see all the addictive behaviors that exist in the world as people are trying to cope with the suffering, the misery of life, of living in a sin-corrupt and fallen world. But Peter's call to preparedness is one that doesn't depend upon the pleasures of life or self-indulgent passions of, of godless ignorance, but a measured and controlled life guided by God's Holy Spirit resting in the grace of Christ. And he gives us two ways that we do that, two ways that we heed this call to prepare our minds. The first is, is this, is the call to prepare is a call to hope. Notice what he says. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so hope then becomes this orientation of our life. Peter says, hope fully, hope completely, hold nothing back. And this hope that we are to have is to be on the grace, he says, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. What's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the future grace of God, the grace that is yet to be, the grace that is there and promised and coming to you in Christ Jesus. He's talking about your final salvation. That inheritance that we saw earlier in chapter 1 of First Peter. You see, when we think about salvation as Christians, a lot of times we think about it more in the present or in the past. You'll hear people talk about that. They'll use language like, well, I was saved. And there, there, there's truth to that. But salvation in Scripture actually transcends time because our Savior transcends time. You see, God's people who are redeemed by His grace alone are saved in Christ, and they are in the process of being saved in Christ in the present, and they will be saved in Christ in the future. And so the hope that Peter is calling here, calling us to hope in, is a future hope, a hope to come, the final outcome, the telos of our salvation that awaits those who 
are God's called exiles, foreknown by the Father, sanctified in the Spirit for obedience and for the sprinkling of blood of Christ, as we saw back in verse 1. So how do you do that, though? Practically. How do you set your hope fully on the grace that is promised to you as a Christian? Especially when you're staring down the throat of suffering. And you feel the hostility of the world beginning to blow against Christ and his church. There's a theme that comes up in scripture every time hope is spoken of. And that is that of remembrance. We remember what God has done. We remember what he has done in the past, which points to who we are in the present, which gives us then the hope of who we will be and what he will do in the future. It is remembrance. The reason we can fully hope in God's future grace is because we have received that past grace of God. We know what it is to be forgiven of our sins. We've already enjoyed that. And God doesn't change. As James tells us in his letter, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. His grace never changes. The promise never is modified or added to or taken away from the promise to be a God to you is still there. And so we have confidence that God's grace will continue through whatever suffering we may encounter in this life if we keep pressing on in our faith, hoping in that grace. And so at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as Peter says, that salvation will be finalized. How do we remember then if we are called to remember? Very simply, through worship. That is why God's people from the very beginning, going back into the Old Testament, are called to worship the Lord gathered as his people on a regular basis. It is why God has given us one day in seven to do so. I mean, worship is rest. It is a haven, a shelter, a safe harbor from the hostility of the world aimed at God's people. And it stirs within us that hope. I mean, consider this as we come to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. When Jesus instituted it, what did he say to his disciples? Well, Luke twenty-two nineteen. he took the bread when he had given thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. The sacrament of the supper is all about remembering Christ's past benefits so that his disciples will have hope for his future promised grace. And the same can be said about the preaching of God's word. It's designed to give hope to God's people, the hope of the gospel, calling them to remember that gospel once delivered. Paul says in Colossians 1 that he was made a minister 
according to the stewardship of God, to make the word of God fully known. Because God had chosen him to make it known, he says, amongst the Gentiles. And what was he to make known? How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And even the songs we sing and the prayers we say, they're all designed to stir up within us to remind us what God has done, who we are, so that we might hope in that future grace, being reminded of his present faithfulness. And so Paul instructs the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5 to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter's call to be prepared is a call to hope, a call to remember what God has done, which will give you assurance of what he will do. Grace is guaranteed because of the death and resurrection of Christ on which we stand. And this call to prepare, as we see here, is also a call to holiness. So look at verses 14 and 15. Again, we see Peter write, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. When we hear that word holy, we no doubt have different reactions to it. Uh, Some of us, if you're like me, who grew up in some form of rigid fundamentalism, may think of holiness as being some sort of separation that's defined by a list of rules of do's and don'ts. That's holiness. Um, Like we used to say in that fundamental Baptist world I was in, you know, I, I don't date, I don't chew. I don't go with girls who do. That was holiness. This list of human standards. Others may hear the word holiness and think of sacred or separateness. For some, holiness sounds very burdensome because of what they've experienced in the past within the church. But Peter doesn't mean to be burdensome here at all. In fact, what he tells us is incredibly liberating. He is reminding you who you are in Christ and then how that life of Christ flows out of you by the grace of God. If we as God's children are to heed this call to prepare ourselves for our earthly sojourn, for our exileship in this land that is often hostile to the truth we believe, then we need to understand what he is calling us to do when he says, be holy. First Peter, he is not calling us to a works-driven righteousness because that isn't the gospel. We don't make ourselves holy. The message of the Bible is clear and consistent. We cannot do anything good enough to justify ourselves in the sight of God. And Peter is consistent with that gospel. Because what has he done? He's called us first to hope before he issues the call to holiness. You see, holiness always follows hope. Hope in Christ, hope in the gospel precedes holiness. 
And if you get that switched, it is cataclysmic because you end up with a works-oriented gospel. And there is no hope in that. But Peter is well acquainted with righteousness that comes only by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone. I mean, after all, remember, he thought he was a pretty good apostle early on. He, he considered himself one of the best of the best. He's the guy that stepped out of the boat in the storm to try to walk to Jesus. He's the one who boasted that he would follow Christ to his death. And yet, in that horrible moment... When questioned at the trial of Christ, he denies him three times. But despite that denial, Jesus forgives him. He restores him. He gives him grace. As Peter knew and understood well what hope was, because he experienced it firsthand. And holiness, then, is the result of God's grace and the power of the Spirit working in the life of the believing Christian. And since it flows from our hope in Christ, who is the mediator of God's covenant of grace, we could say this, that that, that holiness is a marker and an identifier of his people. In fact, we see that in the way Peter frames this call to holiness with our relationship to God. He says, as obedient children, be holy as he who has called you is holy. He's putting his readers into remembrance of who they are, children of the heavenly Father, who is holy, holy, holy. I mean, children often resemble their earthly father and their mother, and it's no different with our heavenly Father. If you are called by him, if he has made you his child, you will resemble him. You'll resemble his holiness. Obviously not in perfection in this life. We understand that we have this sin struggle. But still, the holiness of the Father is there marking you as one of God's children. What that means is it isn't you who has made yourself holy at all. But you are holy by the virtue of God's gracious calling of you into his family. He made you to be a part of his covenant people. And so the expectation then is, is to live in a way that manifests that calling. That is what holiness is, an identifying mark of your covenant relationship with your heavenly Father. In fact, Peter makes this even more clear when he cites from the Old Testament, as we read in verse 16, so it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That statement comes from different places in the Old Testament, in the law. Peter here, though, is specifically quoting from Leviticus. And God says to Moses in Leviticus 19.2, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And what follows there in Leviticus 19, after God says that, is a code of purity laws designed for his people at that time to follow. And the purpose of those laws wasn't to purify them, to make them holy in those actual actions, but to reflect who they already were, God's chosen holy people that he had called by his grace. 
You see, holiness is distinctiveness. It is being set apart, consecrated to God. And Israel in the Old Testament was to be different from all the other peoples of the world. The list of those purity laws were intended to show that they were not part of the kingdom of this world. They were different. They didn't worship pagan idols. They were not living lives of impurity grounded in the worship of empty gods and goddesses, but they were God's people because he had made them so purely out of his grace and love towards them. They belong to a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. And that truth has not changed with the coming of Christ. In fact, as many, with many aspects of God's covenant of grace towards us, it's broadened and it's an expanded The call to holiness is a call to uh, be separate, apart from, from the customs and the values and the virtues of an unbelieving and pagan world. And so Peter doesn't list any Old Testament purity laws here following his call for holiness because we don't need them. Because the principle is clear. His readers didn't need a list of do's and don'ts. Holiness was a matter of the heart, a heart that hopes in Christ and thus reflects that hope by striving for the glory of God, by obeying our strong and our kind King. And so he states holiness really in two ways here, one negative and the other positive. First, he says, do not be conformed by the former passionate ignorance of the world. That's that self-indulgent, godless worldview of pagan society. I mean, conformity has to do with being shaped, being molded. And so holiness then is not being shaped or molded by what the world thinks, what the world glorifies, what the world worships, what the world says is actually moral and right, what the world values. Rather, it is being shaped by what is the truth of God. We can expect an unbelieving world to value those things which are not holy. They always do. It doesn't matter what period of history or what uh, geopolitical part of the world you are in. It will always default to that evil intent of the human part if the grace of God has not worked in a person As I said, expressive individualism is a heart of rebellion against our holy creator. It says, I will think the way I want to think. I will live the way I want to live with no regard to God's revelation of himself in his word. You see, we aren't as Christians engaged in a culture war. What we're looking at is the ongoing rebellion of the human heart that has been bent on finding new ways to violate God's law from the very first sin. It's been going on since the fall in the garden when our first parents, Adam and Eve, were tempted to become like God and chose to follow that own their own self-indulgent passion rather than what God had called them to do. And Peter's readers, his initial readers, and the first audience that he wrote to at that time, 
They're being pressured to conform to cultural and societal norms of a Greco-Roman world that demanded the worship of numerous gods and goddesses. And it's no different for us today as God's people. We're told to conform, to be molded, to be shaped by that former ignorance. We're told to bow the knee to a pantheon of idols ranging from rainbow flags to political ideologues and the pursuit of popularity and the cult of celebrity. In fact, I think you could say that the religion of self is the predominant religion of today. Subjective feelings have become the standard of truth. And we create our own standard of righteousness, our own morality based on how we feel. And yet, as we've already observed, when you do that and the suffering comes at the end of all of that, you find nothing but absolute hopelessness because it cannot answer the misery and the suffering of this sinful world. It only adds to it. And so the call to holiness that Peter is calling us to here as God's people is to abandon all of that, to leave behind that former way, that selfish ignorance, that worldview, and be shaped rather by the holiness of God granted to us in Christ Jesus. See, as God's covenant people, we are not to be conformed by the world, but we are to be conformed, as Peter says here, by the fear of the Lord. That's the positive element. He says, as, uh, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially, verse 17, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear a reverent fear, a, a worshipful fear, a fear that understands because a heart has been warmed by the Spirit of God to the reality of their own sinfulness. They understand then the absolute holiness of God. And when you begin to see God for how holy He truly is, it is a fearful thing. But you see, it is from that fear that our thankfulness flows because we know that not only is He a holy God, He is a gracious God. And yet it is that fear that causes us to fall on our face before the Lord and cry out as the prophet Isaiah did, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is the fear that comes when you see the holiness of God and understand that He is no impartial judge. He sees all our sins, every last one of them. He has no favorites. He is perfectly just. And that is why our hope must be in Christ alone. There's no way to escape the weight of God's holy judgment apart from the mercy of Christ. And it is God's 
absolute holiness then that drives us to live for Him in a way that reflects that holiness that is ours in Christ. Not conformed by the world around us, but shaped by who He is and who He has made us. You see, we never, ever identify with our sin. Oh, we identify as sinners saved by grace, but we never identify with our sin. And this isn't a call to perfectionism, as we've already noted, but it's a call to repentance, a call to continually fall in faith before the cross of Christ, a call to acknowledge that we have transgressed God's law, and when we turn in faith, we find the mercy that is ours. So in other words, holiness is this. It's simply living in the knowledge of who you are in Christ as a child of God. That's what Peter says in verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you be holy as the Father is holy, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Who are you if you are called by the Father and united to Christ? You are ransomed from those futile, empty ways, from that old worldview that ends in hopelessness inherited from Adam. The guilt and the shame and the sin and rebellion, the empty ways of life, the ways that cannot answer the problem of suffering when it comes, that is not who you are because you've been purchased away from them. That word ransom refers to the manumission of slaves. And in in the Greco-Roman world, a slave could deposit money or have someone else do it for them uh, into a temple treasury of one of the Roman gods or goddesses. And the idea was then they are now free from their former owner, but they are now a slave of that particular god or goddess to whom they were now bound. But as a believer in Christ, you are not bought by silver or gold that fades away and disappears with time. You're not ransomed to some empty God or goddess who cannot give you hope. You're ransomed by the precious blood of Christ, your Passover lamb. He stood condemned in your place so that you would not be condemned for your empty, futile, self-indulgent heart. And this, as Peter tells us, he had purpose to do for you even before the world was formed. As Peter says in verse 20, he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was then what? Made manifest, revealed in the last times, in this time. Why? For your sake, so that you could have hope. Because having been made to known to you, you are now, as he says in verse 21, a believer of God through him, so that your faith and hope are in God. And so we come full circle. You see that? And this call to be prepared. 
you are prepared by hoping in God, which manifests itself then in holiness, which you manifest because of who you are in Christ, which leads you then to have more hope and faith in God. That's the Christian life. That's walking in this preparedness that we are called to be. Can we be prepared for suffering in this world? Yes, we can. We can be prepared because we have a sure, everlasting hope that is ours as children of God if you are in Christ by faith. And so hold fast to that faith and manifest that faith through lives that reflect the holiness of our Father who made us His children forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. And as we consider these call, this call to be prepared, I pray that you would, by your spirit, uh, endeavor, give us a new endeavor, a new heart set on being prepared by hoping fully in the grace that is ours in Christ. And to reflect that hope that is ours because we are your people through holiness by glorifying you in what we do and what we say. May we be able to say with the psalmist that our delight is your law because it reflects that we are your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.